Son, that we might live in and through him. But whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did, passing from death to life as we love one another, not being led astray, but remaining in his light where there is no darkness at all. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So let us love one another without fear, for perfect love drives out fear. And if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Believe in the name of his Son and love one another. Dear children, let us not only love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As a teenager in her youth group, her pastor taught her a false theology. And that false theology was this, that God just wants you to be happy, that if you worked hard enough, you could stay within his will. If you worked hard enough, he would save you and shower you with grace. But if you stepped out of line, be ready for God's wrath to come crashing down upon your head. So that caused a lot of angst in her life, but she was doing her best to earn her salvation, to stay within God's will. And then in high school, a friend of hers had a really bad car accident, and she felt that it was her fault. She was torn apart. It's not that she had anything to do with the vehicle or anything with that. The fact was that she had made out with a boy who was an unbeliever, and she felt it was God's wrath coming down upon her, so he was punishing her friend. Her anxiety levels continued as she attempted to work her way into faith and into God's grace. She would go to college. She would meet her husband. She'd have a few kids. Things would be going well as she still had these high anxiety levels about her matters in life and faith. And then one day, she got some really bad news. And when she got that bad news, she just simply said, God, why? Why is it? You've got all these unbelievers out there where this doesn't happen to them. Why is this happening to me? You know what? You wanted me to be happy. You're, I'm not happy, and I'm done. And she walked away from her faith, all because of a false teaching, all because of a false theology that she banked her life on. Have you ever considered that there's something inherently evil about false teaching? You know, false teachers say things like, God just wants you to be happy. Oh, really? How'd that work out for the disciples? No, he wants us to have joy. Joy and happiness are two different things. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy is based on the love of Jesus in our lives. Or they say things like, God just wants you to be rich. Really, again, look at the disciples. How did that work out for them? I mean, rich is different in God's eyes than in our eyes. Well, such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. If you don't want to be spiritually duped, you must know God's word. If you don't want to be spiritually duped, you have to know God's word. It's why here at Cornwall Church, a key discipleship goal that we have is for everyone to connect with God through scripture daily. Understanding and knowing God's word and living it out in your life is so important. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we step into yet another week of this amazing series called Go in Love, Be a Light. It's in this series in which we're pulling apart this gem, this gold mine called 1 John. 
It's, it's an awesome book. It's an awesome letter that John writes. And we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 to 27. So turn to 1 John chapter 2. Let me set the scene for what's going on. I always take us back to the most important event in the history of humankind. And that's Jesus going to the cross, dying, and his resurrection. The resurrection is what we hang our hats on as Christ followers. Without the resurrection, our faith means nothing. So fast forward 60 years from that. John, one of the closest disciples to Jesus. Remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, and Peter, James, and John were his big three that Jesus poured into. John writes this letter as a pastor. It's a very pastoral letter. He's writing it 60 years later. He's in his 80s, late 80s, early 90s. And he's got a burden on his heart. He's the last of the original disciples standing. And he wants people to know to beware. Beware about false teachers. Because false teachers, are, are, he's seeing them pull the church apart. He writes amazing things in this letter like God is love and God is light. He hits home on this point that we need to walk in the light rather than walking in the darkness. That we have this incredible fellowship with God through Jesus, a fellowship that's unfound or is, is unheard of in any other part of the world with any other religion except Christianity. And he hammers that point home. He talks about that fellowship. He talks about those things, but the burden on his heart in this specific section of scripture is false teachers. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Three things before I get started. First of all, I always want to give the, the theologians I leaned into for today's teaching, uh, Timothy Keller, Chuck Swindoll, Warren Wiersbe, and Brian Loritz were the big four I leaned into for this. Second thing is this weekend, today actually is Alta Ruth Calkins' 98th birthday. She is our senior saint here at Cornwall. Let's give her a big round of applause. We love Alta Ruth. She's spry as a spring chicken, and I want to be like her when I grow up. Last but not least, I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it, it was not fun, and I've recovered from it fully. I'm, I'm tested negative. Everything's good. However, my voice is very deep now. I sound like Gronk from an Emperor's New Groove, or it's, it sounds like I, I don't know, I smoke four or five packs of cigarettes a day. It's like, oh, just give me another cigarette, you know. It's, talk about Jesus here in false teachers. <laughs> so... That, that's, that's why you're going to hear me barking like a frog from up here. So with that, let's talk about false teachers. Yay! I'm excited about today's teaching because I'm going to give you some very practical things to put in your toolkit, whether you're a Christ follower or you're not a Christ follower. Some very practical things to help you and to help us as we look at this. Okay, here we go. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He kicks it off. Dear children, underline that word children. This is the last hour. Circle that because we got to land on that. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know that it is the last hour. So he starts off saying, dear children. Now remember, he's a pastor in Ephesus and he's writing to all the churches he's founded and he's very pastoral. But here's the thing. For the three of you who care, the Greek word he uses here is technion for children. And it's really more associated with student. So it's like a teacher talking to students, but not here. Here he uses a different word, padion. Padion is a child, like a father would talk to a child. And why is that important? It's as if he's saying, as he's sitting his son or daughter down and saying, listen, this is important, kiddo. You got to understand this. I'm, I'm telling you this as your dad 
This is the last hour. All of us have had that time in our lives when our parents or, or, or someone who's a mentor in our life sits us down and looks eye to eye and says, listen, I need you to get this. And that's what John is saying here. I need you to get this. This is the last hour. So what does the last hour mean? John writes throughout all of his writings, he uses this phrase, the last hour. We see it in other places in the New Testament. The last hour, simply speaking, is the time uh, for the time between Jesus uh, rises uh, from the dead and he ascends to the right hand of the Father until the time that he comes back in the future. We don't know when that will be. Jesus said he didn't know when that would be. However, he said his father does. So it's between this time and that time in one sense. So it begs a question. If it was the last hour in John's time, how could it be the last hour in our time? Because last hour, it's like 60 minutes, right? Glad you asked. Press pause on 1 John. We need to go to 2 Peter because Peter and Scripture answers this question. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter writes this. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, look at this. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Press pause. God is not bound by time like we are. We think of time as linear. God is all sovereign. He's all present. He's all knowing. So because of that, he's not bound by time. A, a day to him is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So let's keep on going. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some of you understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God's being patient. He wants more people to come to him. He's given us his Holy Spirit. He's given us Jesus who pours out his Holy Spirit. And he's given us the church. And our job is to share that good news. God doesn't want anyone to perish, but we know they will. So he's being slow. Here, it's slow in our ideas, not slow in his because he's not bound by time. So here's the thing about time. This last hour, it's a kind of time, not a duration of time. It's a kind of time, not a duration of time. What do I mean by that? A kind of time, meaning it's a, a time in which things are increasingly getting more intense. We see it. We see it with changes in our climate, weather patterns we haven't ever seen, with things going on in this world that are simply horrific. The intensity increases, but it's not 60 minutes. It's not a duration of time. It's a kind of time. So with that, that's why it's so important for us to be reflecting Jesus and knowing his words. Let's keep on going. Back to First uh, John chapter 2. Let's look at verse 18 again. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard uh, that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So I don't know about you guys. When I see that word antichrist, I think of this disheveled little girl with crazy hair and fangs and a butcher knife going, red rum, red rum. No? Okay, how about if she's spinning, her head spinning around, she's spitting up pea soup going, ah, here's Johnny, here's Johnny. <laughs> no? I'm the only one. Okay, when we see, I mean, that's how the, the horror movies portray the antichrist. Uh, when we see this antichrist in the New Testament. It's one of several things. Antichrist, first of all, simply believes, or simply means opposes Jesus, anti-Jesus, anti-Messiah. That's all it means. But there, it can mean several things when we look at the context of Scripture. First thing, it could be that, uh, that, that spiritual force 
that's part of the cosmos that Pastor Bob talked about last week that I talked about in that really fun sermon I got to give a few months ago on hell. Yay, that was fun. It could also mean false teachers. It could be the son of lawlessness that Paul talks about in 2 Thessalonians 3. It could mean the Antichrist referred to in John's writings in the book of Revelation. But when we look at scripture, we always have to look at context. And in context, what the Antichrist means here is false teachers. He's talking about false teachers, and he hones in on them because they're doing some big-time damage. Okay, let's keep on going. Verse 19, because now he's going to pull this apart. He says, they, the Antichrist, went out from us. So that meant that they were in the church, and they were dividing the church. But they did not really belong to us. But here's the deal. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So false teachers are just flat out dangerous. And throughout the New Testament, all of the writers refer to them in some way, shape, or form. Paul would write the entire book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatian church, the letter to the Colossian church, to push against false teachers. So they're a big deal. So let's, what are some ways to spot a false teacher? Actually, let's look at some of the characteristics of false teachers. First of all, there are a lot of them. He says there's a whole lot of antichrists out there. Secondly, they come from within the church. Now, they can come from outside of the church, but, but most, most likely what happens, or usually what happens, they come from within the church, and they cause great division. And how do they do that? Is they preach and teach things that are antithetical to the gospel, things that go against the basic tenets of faith, things such as salvation by grace alone, in faith alone, through Christ alone. They teach a works-based salvation. They teach things such as there's no such thing as the Trinity. The Trinity, God the Father, revealed by the Son, whom we get to experience through the Holy Spirit. They, they, they say things, and especially in John's time, like there's no such thing as the incarnation. What he means by that is that, the, that, that there's no way that, that God stepped down for his, from his throne to walk in the dirt for 33 years as a person. We're going to talk more about that in a second. They preach and teach things like uh, everyone's born innocent and there's really no such thing as sin. They deny the depravity of mankind. And with that, they don't remain in the church. And that's important. They don't remain in the church. Uh, it says, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So remember, John's a guy of contrast in his writing. So he talks about these antichrists. Now he's going to talk about you and I. Here we go. Look at this, verse 20 to 21. He says, but you, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you don't know, what, know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. So he talks about this thing called an anointing. An anointing, in the Old Testament, uh, prophets, priests, and kings, before they would step in to do in their work, they would be anointed. They would have this oil poured on, on their heads. And it resembled, it was a, a, a God actually uh, placing his hands on them and just coating their bodies from head to toe. With us, though, when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, Ephesians 1.13 says, bam, we are sealed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That means he takes up residence in us. That means that we have access to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're sealed. We're anointed. And with that anointing, we have the ability to see what's weird and what's right. As I said, John's talking about, he's a guy of contrast. 
He talks about God versus evil, walking in the light versus walking in the, in the dark, the Christ versus Antichrist. And now he's talking about true believers versus false teachers, or what I refer to as counterfeits. If you would ever talk to somebody in the Secret Service or somebody in the Department of Treasury, somebody who works in the banking business, the finance business, who, who deals with counterfeit money, they will all probably tell you that the best way to spot a counterfeit isn't to memorize what's wrong. There are thousands of different ways a dollar bill can be wrong. They say, no, memorize what's right and what's wrong is going to jump out. When I was uh, in special forces, I was a military intelligence detachment commander and then a special forces headquarters company commander. And at that time, uh, we were all paratroopers. We liked jumping out of airplanes. We're sick like that. And at that time, as a commander, I realized that I had to be jump master qualified in order to maintain my command. Jump master qualified meant that, that I had to be able to inspect, I had to go through a very difficult school and then get rated to inspect parachutes and combat equipment and actually airplanes to make sure all of my paratroopers were safe as they jumped out. One bad thing, uh, on a parachute that I would miss, a, a paratrooper could frap into the dirt and last time I heard, that's not fun. So. I went to jump master school. Now, it's got a huge fail-out rate. It's not a, a difficult school physically. It's very difficult mentally. It's a, like a 10-day school, so it's a short school. And 90% of the people who go fail out first time through. I wanted to make it first time through. So I went to my operations sergeant who had made it through, and I said, hey, uh, how do I make it through? He said, sir, here's the bottom line. Don't memorize what's wrong. There are a thousand different things that can go wrong with that parachute, with all that combat equipment. So many things that could go wrong. What, what you need to do is memorize what's right. If you memorize what's right, what's wrong is going to jump out at you. And he was exactly right. And by the grace of God and his advice, I made it through that school first time. My point is this. The same is true when it comes to teaching. The same is true when it comes to anyone preaching God's word. You got to know God's word, know what's right. So when they say something that's wrong, you can go, whoa, 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 wait a second. At the end of today's teaching, I'm going to give you five ways to spot that, but that's for later. When you know what's right, what's wrong will stand out. So that's why John writes about knowing the truth. If you go to the first gospel, the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he, he records Jesus's words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father, but by me. So Jesus is the truth, and we subordinate ourselves to him. He gives us his word, the Bible, and we subordinate ourselves to him because we don't form the truth. The truth forms us. We don't, we don't form the truth. The truth forms us. If you're sitting there reading your Bible, and all of a sudden there's something that pops out at you, you're reading some of those letters from Paul that can be pretty tough, and some things are said, and you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. No, I don't believe that. I'm not going to believe that, but I'll believe this. We start picking and choosing, and when we do that, what happens is we make a God of our own choice, a God of our own being, a God that we can control. I want to worship a God who's bigger than me, who does push up against me and some of my thoughts and my beliefs out of his love for me and for others. So he gives us his Holy Spirit. And that's what John's talking about here. It's an anointing, an anointing that helps us spot the counterfeit or walk in the truth. Let's keep on going. Verses 22 and 23. He continues, who is the liar? Okay, isn't this fun? We got liars, we got antichrists. I'm talking like I smoke a pack of camels. <laughs> Who's the liar? 
It's the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has a father also. So the big issue for heretics in John's day, the the big issue for false teachers was something called the incarnation. Don't roll your eyes back and fall asleep. This is important. Because what would happen is they would teach that there was no way that Jesus would step down from heaven and become man, that God would become a person because the, the body is evil and flesh is evil. The Gnostics of that time taught that. Pastor Bob covered that in week one. So that's what they believe. So he pushes hard against that. You see, the incarnation is extremely important. If you take away the incarnation that man becomes flesh, that Christianity fails. Or that God became flesh, Christianity fails. If you take away the incarnation, let me explain that. Here's the incarnation. For God so loved all of us, despite of our jacked upness, that he gave his one and only son, Jesus. So Jesus steps down from heaven. He sets aside his glory out of perfect humility, and he, he becomes a person, a man. He walks the dirt for 33 years, totally sinless, in a body that would be decayed, or that would decay, in a body like ours, yet it was not, had, had had no sin because Jesus was sinless. He sets aside his glory, and because of that, because he walks for 33 years and he's sinless, he goes to the cross, and he's the perfect sacrifice because you have to have a sacrifice to right the wrongs. You have to shed blood to right the wrongs. Go back to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve biff it, and all of a sudden when they they mess up, they realize that they're buck-naked. And God goes out looking for them. He knew where they were. And he said, Adam, what, what, what up? And they're like, well, and so we know the story. And so all of a sudden, they realize that they're, they're naked and ashamed. So what does God do? He doesn't sacrifice people. He sacrifices animals so that they can have that, the animal skin, the fur, cover their nakedness. It covers their sin. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus from the beginning of the fall of man. So Jesus goes to the cross. He's crushed for our sin. He dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. That resurrection is important. Without the resurrection, Christianity means nothing. But he doesn't, he's resurrected in the flesh. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and that God raised him from the dead. What that means is, is that we, we will be saved. That resurrection and incarnation come together. Now Jesus is our mediator. Pastor Bob covered that uh, in week three when he talked about atonement and what atonement meant. That means that Jesus understands everything you're going through. If you're going through the worst thing in life, he's been there, done that, and he will walk with you. The love came down. That's the importance of this thing called the incarnation. Jesus is the only shepherd out there who knows what it's like to be a sheep. No other religion does that. Only Christianity does that. No other religion has a God who loves his people so much, his people who would betray him, yet he still came with them. And so so our job now is to lean into him, to believe into him. So the problem was the false teachers not only didn't believe that, they were teaching others that this truth was really a lie. That's why John calls them liars. Verses 24 and 25. 
See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, he says. If it does, you will also remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he promised, even eternal life. John talks a lot about remaining, especially in this letter of 1 John. He, he would refer back to his gospel that he wrote about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection. John chapter 15, it's all about remaining. It's all about abiding. John chapter 15, verse 5. Let's look at this real quick. And if you want a good life verse for your life, this is a great life verse to memorize. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he's going to bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. It's about remaining. And remaining is about obedience. But look at this, look at this. It's obedience to love God greatly and love each other dearly. But here's the problem. We think that remain is about obedience, and obedience leads to intimacy, but it's totally, that, that's, that, that's jacked up. We remain through intimacy with Jesus, and through that intimacy, we want, we want to live out those commands. It, it's a difference between legal obedience and godly obedience, because there's a big difference between the two. I'm all about legalism, unfortunately, because of my flesh. It's easy to follow rules. And God consistently clocks me on the head that, no, it's, it's about godly obedience. It's about his grace. So let's look at the difference between the two. You see, legal obedience says, I'm good because of what I do. Godly obedience says, I'm good because of what Christ has done. Legal obedience says, I do, therefore I'm approved. Godly obedience says, I'm approved, therefore I do. Legal obedience is based on behavior and behavior and more behavior and more working, and it flat out wears you out. Godly obedience, that's based on the heart. It's based on the heart. We want to please God, not because we're worried about this or worried about losing our salvation. We do it because we have this intimacy with Jesus who longs to simply sit in your lap and walk you through the highs, lows, wins, and losses of life. Legal obedience, in the words of Pastor Brian Loritz, is nauseating, it's, it shows arrogance and pride. It's about self-righteousness. Godly obedience, though, it's humility. It's humility with Jesus as our example. That's the beauty of the incarnation. He gives us the example of how to live. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So we remain through intimacy. And with that intimacy, we get that obedience. It's not about white knuckling. It's about intimacy. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. Our eternal life is not based on our performance. Our eternal life is based on God's promises and what he did on the cross. Let me say that again. Our eternal life is not based on our performance. It's based on God's promises and what he did on the cross. So let's go back to the backside of 1 John 2 verse 25. He says this, and this is what he promised us, even eternal life. So we're going to Greek out and geek out here for a second. That word promise is very important. The word is epigoleia. He only uses this word in his writings, epigoleia, epigoleia. It's more than a pinky promise. It's more than a high five. It's more than a hug. It's more than a handshake. It's more than saying, dude, trust me, I got it. It's a blood oath. 
Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He breaks the bread and says, this is my body broken for you. Then he gets that red wine and says, this is my blood poured for you, poured for the forgiveness of sins. In 1 John 5, verse 7, we see that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. That blood is important. It's a blood oath. God gives us the promise. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. Then he wraps it up in verses 26, 27. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. So he's talking about the false teachers. As for you, the anointing you receive from him, the Holy Spirit remains in you. And look at this. You do not need anyone to teach you. Underline that because we got we to talk about that. You do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught to you, remain in him. So he says, you don't need anybody to teach you. You got the Holy Spirit. Here's what he's not saying. He's not saying don't listen to pastors, don't read commentaries, don't listen to podcasts because you only listen to the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's saying at all. John's not pushing against secondary teachers because he's one. He's a pastor. He's not saying don't listen to pastors. He's saying that the ultimate authority comes from the Holy Spirit. So early on in my ministry life, uh, I was a youth pastor in Korea. We had an incredible youth group, a couple hundred kids, about 30 volunteers. It was so much fun, a great time in my life. And what we would do is we would do these retreats. And when we would do the retreats, I would take anyone who's giving a talk at the retreat besides me, whether they were a young man or woman within the youth group, or if if they were an adult, one of the volunteers, and we'd do what's called a pre-preach they would have to sit down and lay out their sermon or their talk, and they would have to preach it. And then we would sit there, and it's not like we would sharpshoot them, but we would make sure everything was sound as a pound theology, showing places where they could improve and things of that nature. Well, I had one guy who was really, really good, and he'd been good up to this time, but he gave a catawonky, crazy talk. And I'm sitting there looking at him like a pig looking at a wristwatch. You know, if, if, if a pig had a watch on its hand, it's like, Okay, Lassie hears a dog whistle. How about that? I'm like, that's why I was looking at him. And I said, dude, what, what is up? Because usually he's on. He's like, and so we had a long conversation. At the end of the conversation, it basically came out. He came back to this verse. He said, you do not need anyone to teach you. I'm like, Whoa, wait a second, man. The stuff that you were teaching is not biblical. It's all works-based. And he goes, well, I was listening to the Holy Spirit. I said, no, you, you aren't. You had bad kimchi, man. You, you, you like, ate some really bad bulgoki. We lived in Korea at the time, okay? So I said, this is jacked up. And so he had said, yeah, I threw all of those things away. Well, what John says here is the Holy Spirit is our ultimate authority. He is our guide. He leads us. And he calls on us to know God's word. So when we know what's goofy, we'll stand out and we can either run away from that or do a, a good correction of that. You have to know God's word to handle it correctly and to spot false teachers. You got to know God's word. It's why we want you in it daily. Warren Wiersbe said these words. So good. He said, all of the Bible was written for you, not all of the Bible was written to you. And that's important as we spend time in God's word. Think about this. All of the Bible was written for us. We've got those incredible, uh, incredible principles from the Old Testament that we can apply to our lives. But not all of it was, was written to us. Let me give you an example. Go to the book of Leviticus. 
The book of Leviticus is a, is a hand guide for Levitical priests. There are amazing principles we can take out of there when it comes to uh, the way we worship and things of that nature, worshiping God in reverence, things of that nature. But I would be a little scared if somebody wanted us to sacrifice a cow up here and sprinkle seven, uh, seven drops of blood on the altar. That would be a little goofy because that wasn't written for us. It was written to the Levitical priests. But there are principles we can take. So, it's, uh, so God has written things to us. You look at the New Testament and we have glaring things about how we're supposed to live our lives as Christ followers and how we're supposed to lead as a church. And what happens is false teachers will take passages out of context, verses out of context, and they'll form entire theologies out of that and lead people astray. That's what happened to my friend that I was talking about at the beginning of today's teaching. So let's look at this. I want to get very, very practical here in the last few minutes of our teaching today. And what I want to do is I want to give you five key questions that you can ask to spot a counterfeit. And, and these five key questions, I'm going to go through them very quickly, and then I'm going to use an example to pull them apart, okay? So if you don't get them through the first time in your notes, uh, you'll get them through when we pull it apart. Here we go. Five key questions. When you have someone teaching a given topic, whatever that topic may be, make sure you ask, first of all, what's the definition of what they're talking about? Because the way we define things will, will be a way that we attack things so what's, or, or, or look at things. So what's your definition? It's not clear right now. Trust me, it will be when I use the example. What's your definition? Second thing is, where did you get that definition? Where did you get that definition of whatever they're talking about? Third thing is, what does Scripture say about it? What does the Bible say about that? Fourth thing, did Jesus and his disciples teach on that? Did Jesus and his disciples teach on that? Fifth thing, did the New Testament church practice it? Did the New Testament church, notice I said the New Testament church and not the early church, different. Early church goes up to the Reformation in the 1500s and there's some jacked up stuff that happened in the early church. Talk in the New Testament church, did they practice it? Let me give you an example of how that played out in my life. I had a gentleman approach me a couple years ago, and he said, hey, Kip, I'm worried my daughter's in sin. And I said, oh, what's going on? He said, well, she's going out on a date with a black man. I said, what? Yeah, it's an African-American young man. Asked her out. She's white. That's a sin. Again, I look at him like a pig looking at a wristwatch. Huh? So I said, okay, let's take it through this, this grid. What's your definition of marriage and race? And he said, well, it's one man, one woman, white, white, black, black, uh, Asian, Asian, you name it. All right. Where did you get that definition? Now, he was raised in, a small, in, in the deep south, in a small church in the, in the deep south. And his pastor actually taught that. They were part of a denomination that taught that. They've done so much damage in our country for many, many years, hundreds of years. So I said, all right, what does the Bible say about that? Where does he get that out of the Bible? And he quoted an obscure passage out of the Old Testament that basically said uh, that, because remember, the, the Bible's written for us, but not all of it's written to us. It was to the Jewish people that they should not intermarry within the nations around them because it will corrupt their faith. God had a whole bunch of reasons for that. 
And so that was what the, he had used in the Bible. So I explained to him, dude, that's taken out of context, but let's keep on going with this. Did Jesus teach this? Absolutely not. Did the New Testament church practice this? Again, crickets, nothing. I said, no, they didn't. Next weekend, Pastor Brian's going to be preaching more about remaining, what it means to remain. And then the following weekend, I'm back up here, and I get to do a little bit of a rabbit trail. Uh, spoiler alert, it's kind of cool, how the Antioch church broke down all these racial barriers. So no, the New Testament church did not practice this. This was someone taking something out of context and leading a whole bunch of people astray, and it was dividing this man's family. This man had been steeped in this junk because it was a false teacher. I said, dude, when was the last time you started reading your Bible? I don't like reading the Bible. Okay, that might be an issue. Let's walk through this together. Heretical teaching, false theology on those main things, very, very dangerous. That's why this is so important for us. That's why we here at Cornwall Church stand on God's word. We want to point people to Jesus. And those five questions are so essential for helping you as well as helping us as we preach. Because we preachers at the, at the end of our Saturday night service, we get together, usually Brian and I and Bob, and we'll say, okay, was there anything theologically wrong? Do I need to change anything? We always do that because we want to make sure we're handling God's word effectively. So let me land this plane. Let me land this plane. 31 years ago, Saddam Hussein, on August 2nd, 1990, he and his uh, troops, they invaded Kuwait and they annexed Kuwait. It was horrible what was going on there. So we know the deal. The United Nations got together. They put together a multinational force. I was honored to be part of that multinational force, the invasion force, to push him and his troops back into Iraq. Now, here's what's interesting about it. A lot of people don't know that Saddam was completely duped, that his focus, he knew, he was convinced that, that the United States specifically, but the multinational forces were going to do a huge amphibious landing into, uh, into Kuwait. So my friends who were Marines, I felt so sorry for them because uh, so many of them were put on these boats just floating outside the Gulf, and they were going to be the ruse. Everybody thought that that's where it was coming from. Meanwhile, the multinational forces did an end around, and they came through the backside and kerspankled Saddam's troops. Take that, Saddam. Here's the thing about that. We, too, can be duped if we don't stay focused on what's important, if we don't stay focused on Jesus, if we, we do more than just, just pray. We, we, we need to be in his word in the word and understand who he is so we can love God greatly and love others dearly. We spend time in God's word. We stand firm in those truths, but we love well. We're not jerks about it. We stay focused on Christ. We stay focused on him because love came down. So John gives us this letter. It's an amazing letter. It's a letter of love, but it's also a letter of warning. Know the word, don't be duped. 